Hello, hello, beautiful podcast family. What a privilege and honor to be with you again. I hope that wherever you are, you're doing incredible. I'm sending you all of my love, good vibes, well wishes, prayers your way. We have an absolutely phenomenal episode of the show for you today. We have Tamarack Song on and we are talking about the life and training of a guardian warrior. Tamarack is a really special individual. This is a fantastic episode. He has really deep wisdom and some incredible experiences. Uh, We talk a lot. We talk about very important things. We talk about him hitchhiking around the USA to learn from different indigenous elders. We talk about um, the Indian three-word Bible. We talk about the three archetypes. Um, We talk about uh, my training with David Lone Bear, uh, why everything we learned is pattern behavior. We talk about what he learned from raising and living with wolves. Uh, We talk about, you know, how we can make a difference in very practical ways. He shares some incredible stories. Um, You know, the natural way to raise a child in community. We talk about so many concepts that are really important and very, very grounded in solutions. So this is a fantastic episode. I know you're going to enjoy it. If you do like this episode, please share it as far and as wide as you can. Leave a review in iTunes. The best thing you can do is become a member of the Academy. So go to map Belair.com and join the academy you can do so by a small donation or even for free just send me an email i'll happily make you a link so we can stay connected i'm posting a great deal of information on telegram and and looking for solutions so you can find all those links at mapbelair.com and for those of you guys who really want to use what's going on in this world as an opportunity for transformation you want to really connect with who you are who you came here to be get your mind your body and spirit in total alignment and you want to work with me or community um, now is an amazing time to do so and if i can support you just go to mattbelair.com forward slash coaching and would love to work with you and help you um, just get into a state of total empowerment and solutions because that is what's required although we are in some very challenging times we are in very transformative times as well and there's a ton of uh, opportunity and uh, you know a great importance a great importance for us to be in alignment with ourselves and our true and our highest nature to let go of every limitation and any um, distortion and any you know compromise we are making to really get in alignment with our true heart's purpose and our soul so you can also check out the quantum heart hypnosis or the soul compass course as well but if you want to go with the coaching go to mattbelair.com forward slash coaching and i would love to work with you as always the best way to support the show is with three kind acts wherever you are in the world and with that said um, let's come into a state of peace and coherence wherever you are in this world uh, just taking a deep breath in through your nose Hold that breath and let it out slowly, filling every cell, muscle, and fiber of your being with peace, joy, contentment, courage, inspiration, connection, and ready to take on this amazing episode with Tamarack Song. Hello and welcome to the Mastermind, Body, and Spirit Show. I'm your host, Matt Belair. As you know, we are facing extreme censorship alongside many other truth seekers out there. If you want to support this show, please go over to mattbelair.com, become a member by donation, um, share, leave a review, do what you can to get the shows out there. But most importantly, uh, consider doing three kind acts wherever you are in the world today. Mm. Today's guest has been in guardian training since he was a young child. 
His first missions were rescuing wild animals in distress and protecting kids who were being bullied. He saw himself as a Robin Hood righting wrongs as he sleuthed through the neighborhood woods or Superman serving justice while flying through the town on his red Schwinn bike. Mentored by wolves when he was a young child, he would train with the pups and shadow the pack's guardians on scouting excursions, boundary patrols, and hunts. In the 1980s, he joined with the Ojibwe Indian Ogichita warriors during the Wisconsin Walleye War, which was waged to reassert the Ojibwe's treaty-guaranteed rights to hunt and gather on their ceded territories. In honor of his service, he was given the title Ogichita Tamarack. Now in his 70s, he still maintains an active personal training schedule, and he runs at he runs at home and on the ground training intensives for those called to the guardian way. Welcome to the show. Tamarack song. Oh, thank you, Matt. It's great to be here. I look forward to our sharing. Yeah, I'm really excited about this show. We got connected uh, a while back and I started to look at what you were doing and your history and your life. And I was like, holy smokes, this is uh, really an extraordinary way of life. Like you've been walking the path since you know since you were a child it's uh, really fascinating and you were kind enough to send me your book uh, like a shadow and i opened it up and i was like this is amazing you know i started to look at some of the things that you teach and how practical it is and how it all comes from uh, real world experiences you know like I, I i get sent a lot of books and i read a lot of books and immediately i was like captivated by what's in here um, maybe because i have a martial arts background but um, it's clear that you've been walking the path for a long time so why don't we um, begin with you just sharing a little bit about your background, like in, in, in how you got to where you are today and all the amazing things you've done. I know it's vast, but uh, I'm, I'm really curious. You know, I want to hear about, you know, your childhood and, and how you've kind of gotten to where you are today. Okay. Yeah, I'd be glad to share, Matt. Uh, just to let you know right off the top, if there's anything you'd like to explore more deeply, I don't mind being interrupted at all. You know, I'd like to keep this as much a two-way sharing as possible. Um, first of all, I, I have to start with crediting my mother. Uh, my earliest memories are of her taking me out with a little pink porcelain coffee cup. I was three years old and I had this little cup in my hand. And uh, we went out to gather wild strawberries. And uh, we passed a willow bush and she cut off a, a section of branch and, and, and showed me how to make a willow flute by slipping the bark and running it forward and, and, and cutting a groove in the wood and slipping the bark back. and and making a flute just like that. And uh, she grew up on an, on an immigrant farm. Um, her Italian father came over from uh, uh, the Florence area of Italy. He was a stonemason. And they had a little 39 acre uh, plot of land and they, they raised 14 kids on 39 acres. So they had to do a lot of foraging and gathering for their, for their basic survival. And um, it never left my mom. You know, she grew up through the through the depression. On top of that, and uh, they, uh, she talked about walking the railroad tracks to go to school in in first and second and third grade. And they would pick hazelnuts from along the the railroad grade on the way to school so that they would have some food. Uh, and it was really a hard scrabble life. And uh, after that, you know, there was the, 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 the boom, the economic boom after World War II. She got married and settled in the suburbs and, and the, the, the typical story back then for white middle-class people anyway. And uh, 
she the her her way of life never left her though she still went out gathering berries in the summertime and gathering nuts in the autumn and uh, scavenging from the fields after the farmers harvested their beans and peas and beets and and uh, she's 92 years old now and she's still at it uh, it's just great so I have to credit my mother with my my direct connection to the means and ends of my existence with with um, having this this um, this strong um, uh, reverence for the earth and this this just Nope, oh, you froze on me. It's just oh. in my blood. Oh, there we go. We, uh, you froze on me just for a second there. You, you froze at uh, when you talked about the strong reverence for the earth. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. So I, my strong reverence for the earth and and my wanting to um, protect and and um, uh, restore what's been destroyed is 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 in my blood because that's the way my mother raised me and it's the way she still is so uh i just have this this deep respect for my mother and and from there uh uh my my dad uh came home one night from work and um he brought in uh, uh he picked up a hitchhiker who turned out to be um, a native american who I call Indians, they don't like being called Native Americans because they don't consider themselves Americans. They have their own nations, the Navajo Nation and the Menominee Nation. So they consider that a perjurative. They wanna be called Indians. And, and my, my Indian friends corrected me when I started using the politically correct term Native American. They don't want it. So uh, I refer to them as Indians, and it, it's not a slight at all. It's it's out of um, regard for my friends and how they like to be called. So anyway, my dad came home. I was probably seven years of age with this um, Indian elder he picked up who was hitchhiking. He was going back to the Menominee Reservation in northern Wisconsin, and he had supper with us. He was our overnight guest. And um, I, I was a kid, and, and we played cowboys and Indians, you know, and, uh, and um, I was really i always wanted to be the indian and uh, my other friends were the cowboys you know so i was always running from them and hiding and and, um, and um, playing tricks on them to try to dissuade them from from my path and uh, uh there was the so here was this guy sitting at our at our dinner table and i started pumping him with questions all kinds of questions about stereotypical indians i wondered if he had a headdress and if he lived in a teepee and uh he the, the elders, one thing about them is that as ridiculous as I got sometimes, even as an adult, uh, they were always respectful of me. They never rolled their eyes. They never laughed, but always listened, always honor and respect. And above all else, that is probably the, 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 the most potent lesson I got from them. But anyway, here I was asking him these questions. And uh, after a while, and he, he answered, he, he talked about what his lifestyle was like and um, how this, how the uh, stereotypical Indian no longer exists and, and what, what his life was really like as much as a seven-year-old could understand it. And uh, my dad, after a little while said, hey son, you know, why don't we just let him eat? And, uh, <laughs> and quit pumping him with questions, essentially. But you know, the conversation continued. He was silent and I was silent but we had this connection. 
And it's, it's what I now know as nature speak, what the elders have, uh, have told me about the universal language that all nature is um, connected with all the time. Everything is in, in communication with everything out in nature. And that's why there's such balance there. There's such harmony. And he and I were connecting on that level. And it felt so, so natural to me that, that, and, and, uh, that I could do it with another human being because I, when I was a kid, I was running outside all the time. I'd come home from school and I'd throw my books down and I'd be out the door, out in the woods and the swamps, out, which was our backyard. And uh, I never had my homework done. I'd go home, I'd go to school the next day and without my homework done, and I'd have to stay at, stay late, stay over after school to finish my homework before the nuns let me go home. Otherwise, I wouldn't get my homework done. And uh, so I, I knew what nature speak was because I lived it as a kid. I knew this universal language, but to communicate with another human being so impressed me. And after that, I started um, craving time with the indigenous elders. And as I, I dropped out of college three times to, to hitchhike around the country, looking for uh, indigenous elders who still practice some of their old ways so that I could apprentice to them. And um, I found them, you know, I found a Hopi elder, Thomas Banyakan, and a Blackfoot elder, and an Ojibwe elder, and a Blackfoot elder in North Dakota, an Ojibwe elder in uh, uh, Oregon. And I spent time with all these people, and I just kept learning and learning and learning. And uh, the, the real beauty of it is that I, I was learning, of course, I was all ears, I was listening. But uh, there's this one Blackfoot elder who Told, turned around, I was asking him a lot of questions. I wanted to start a community. I wanted to live the old ways again. And um, I wanted to learn what it was like to live in community in balance with the earth and be, be essentially uh, return to the hunter-gatherer way of life. And this one elder turned around to me and he said, Tamrak, you know, when you're talking, you're just repeating what you already know. And when you're asking questions, you're asking what you think you should know. You would learn a lot more if you would listen. And um, he was very respectful about it again, but it just hit me and I felt ashamed. You know, I felt this, this flush in my face. And it was also the flush of awareness because I realized what he was saying. When I listen, I learn. When I talk, I'm just repeating what I already know whether it's a question or an answer, it doesn't matter. So I started listening. And that's when I really started learning. That, that was my awakening, you might say, my, my, um, my first step of awareness. Because without awareness, um, there, nothing's possible. So that, that's my background in a nutshell. That's, a, that's amazing. You know, uh... I've also studied with several indigenous elders. Um, I, did, I, I would always say Native American. Nobody corrected me on that, so I don't know. But I was also tolding, uh, telling you before the show, um, my now friend, David Lombear Senapas is a <clears throat> Mi'kmaq, and I first introduced him as a Mi'kmaq. He's like, that's a slander. And I was like, why didn't you, why didn't you, I was like, why didn't you correct me? I didn't know that. And he goes, you know, yeah. I didn't want to correct my friend. And I was like, my goodness, like, I don't know the, I don't know that. Um, but I learned so much from, from them, um, David Lone Bear, Clifford Mahuti, and also Carlos Barrios. And interestingly, they all had a 20,000 year history. And sadly, what I learned 
was that um, a lot of the elders don't want to share because of the history between us is not good. And so I'm guess there's a lot of different ways we could go with this, but I would love for you to talk about, um, you know, your book a little bit and, you know, what it means to be a guardian warrior, what it means to connect with the earth, because we are living in such trying times right now. And I told you before the show, as like, you know, I've always valued um, elders, you know, like in Native American culture was always something that uh, resonated with me because it was in balance with life and they really value community. And it wasn't about just the meaningful pursuit of physical material objects with no soul or substance, right? It was, it was more uh, community and nature-based. And, and it seemed to me based more on spirituality, on, on higher principles. And I would just love for you to either talk about uh, your book or, or some of the things that I just kind of covered there and what you learned from, from your teachers. Yeah, I'd be glad to. Uh, the title of the book is Like a Shadow, which says everything to me because we, uh, we see ourselves as, as the pinnacle of evolution. We see ourselves as separate and distinct from everything. You know, there's, there are humans and there's nature. We've separated ourselves. And uh, from indigenous perspective, there is no distinction because our nature is nature. There is no way to separate ourselves from nature. You know, in, in uh, indigenous languages, and I've studied the Ojibwe language particularly extensively, um, there's no word for nature because there, uh, in, in, in uh, pre-contact times, nature was all there was. There was nothing separate and distinct from it. So there was no separate word for it. They lived in nature and their nature was nature. So, what I learned uh, from them was how to be, not how to do so much, but how to be. Their life was based on qualitative principles, what we would call spiritual principles. Now, this is interesting, too, because um, I, I would oftentimes talk about spirituality with the elders. And uh, they, interestingly, again, there's no separation because their spirituality is embedded in their culture. It's embedded in everything they do. They have a, a, a three-word uh, Bible, you might say, and that is honor and respect. That covers everything. They do everything with honor and respect. And the, the spirituality is embedded. That the, Yes, they have ceremonies and rituals and stuff, um, Yet, you, you might say their life is a ceremony. I, I would go out to pick berries with them or out to uh, net fish. And the first thing they would do is to lay down an offering. It's not that what, what they are after is not resources. They're not out there. That, that stuff is not out there for them. But it's the other way around. They are out there to serve. For example, we went out to pick raspberries once. And um, first thing they would do is they, they, they carry a pouch with them that has uh, an offering herb in it called kinnikinnik, which means much mixed. It's a mixture of sacred herbs. And they would lay down a pinch of that herb in, in front of one of the raspberry plants and ask the raspberry plants if they had some fruit to spare. And uh, the answer could be yes or no. And the fruit to spare was not just for them. On average, they would pick about maybe 30% of a crop and leave the rest for reproduction and the rest for the other people. Now, by the other people, 
what they mean is the chipmunk people and the deer people and the bird people. And we are human people. It's we're all people, all living together in the hoop of relations. So they always left enough for the other people. And uh, this this was an important lesson for me. And what and, and this has to do with guardianship, being a guardian, being a caretaker. And everything they did uh, rotated around the three archetypes. You know, one is the nurturer. The other is the voice or the lead. <clears throat> and the other is the guardian. And all of us are one of the three archetypes. Some of us are pretty strong in two archetypes. And there's the rare person who functions in all three. But uh, the... the uh, in, in indigenous cultures and, and in my study of anthropology, um, I found out that these, these themes are found all around the world in indigenous and traditional cultures. Um, there are the guardians who train in guardian skills, which are the skills of being like a shadow, of being unobtrusive, of being uh, all aware, listening, hearing, seeing everything around you and um, functioning in the background, always being uh, being there, but not being present to the point that you are going to be obtrusive or that you are going to be noticed for what you do. Because as soon as you're noticed for what you do, you become a target. This is really important. Um, nobody notices shadows. A shadow just follows along behind you, right? Everyone has, an, has a focus on you not your shadow. So if I can shadow something, I'm right there. I'm right in the middle of the action, but nobody notices me. So that's why I chose Like a Shadow as the title of the book, because that has everything to do with guardian training. Everything we do is about stealth. It's about presence without being obtrusive, because then I can be fully effective and functional because nobody's noticing what I'm doing. I'm, nobody's taking any energy away from me. I have my autonomy. Shadows move effortlessly across the land. They move silently. They move unobtrusively. They touch everything. They notice everything. And they disturb nothing. And that is the essence of the guardian. Holy smokes. That's powerful stuff. I feel like the way most people live in cities would be the complete opposite of what you're sharing now. And uh, I think that that's why we're in this mess that we're in because we're disconnected from nature and to get into the weirdness of what's going on in the world, you know, humans are connected to nature and what is happening is a massive disconnection from nature, um, mm. you know, in every single way through our technologies. And there does seem to be an agenda that you can go find and read to make us more artificial, take away that human spirit, that human spark, that natural uh, way of life. I think that's our soul and our spirit and our connection to everything here and where we derive our power, where we de derive, um, you know, our humanity. And so maybe you can share some of the principles you talk about in the book, because I think a lot of them are, are applicable to everyone. You go into mindset and the driving force, um, you know, being of service, which is um, obviously incredibly important. And, you know, maybe you can go into some of the guardian training that you teach and how 
this is a lot, you know, a lot of questions. So pick at what you wish, but um, also how does someone apply this when they're, when they're in the world, right? We're in the cities. We're not maybe taught or, or trained how to live in this manner, but we want to transition and start to apply these principles to our life. Yeah. I, I think where I'd like to start is by looking at, at how we function in this world. We, in our, in our domestication, and we all became domesticated as children, we were born wild. We were spontaneous beings, fully present, fully engaged, uh, fully empowered. And we gradually learned that it's, it's not right to just be your spontaneous self. There are expectations of you. First of all, you can't run around naked. You got to get dressed. Secondly, you can't just say what you want to say. You, if you do, you have to say it in a way that's palatable to other people. And you say certain things to certain people and certain things you don't say to certain people. And you're not entitled to your own feelings. Uh, there are good feelings and there are bad feelings. Uh, and you are not entitled to following your own instincts. There are expectations placed upon you. You're going to be going to school and you have to learn this and this and that in order to become this and this and that in order to function in this society as it's set up. So there's this conditioning process that denies and suppresses who we are as unique individuals. We all have a special gift to give back to our people. We all have a special role to play and most of us have lost touch with that. So the, the first aspect of training, of guardian training, is to realize that training is life and life is training. And, and what that means is that when we separate out the training from our lives, we go on with our regular lives. And then we have this special time for training and then we go back to life. Well, our minds don't work that way because we have these these neurons, these neural receptors that, that join and connect. And uh, we, we become creatures of habit and pattern. We're, we, it's action and reaction. When there's an action, we are conditioned to react in a certain way. And we do that automatically. So when we're called to uh, serve as a guardian, we fall back on these, on these patterns, these conditioned patterns that, we, that are hardwired into our brains. And this is why the training has to be a part of everyday life because we have to break out of these patterns and rewire our brains to function in the way that they are intended so that when, when there's a crisis, when there's an emergency and we step forward, we automatically slide into this, into this mindset of, of serving and being spontaneous and being fully engaged with our intrinsic powers rather than falling back on these old patterns, which are the opposite. So there's a real easy way to train that we can do all the time to break these pattern behaviors. 98% of what we do is conditioned responses. It's pattern behaviors. The way we talk, we use the same 500 words over and over and over. Uh, the way we act, watch yourself when you go up a set of stairs, you always lead with the same foot. Uh, watch yourself when you eat. I bet you always eat with the same hand. Uh, on and on and on. Nearly everything we do is a pattern behavior. And it's so easy to train, 
by just breaking these pattern responses. Um, eat with your opposite hand. Uh, get up at different times in the morning. If you're always setting your alarm for six o'clock, you're conditioned to get up at six o'clock and go through your same routines. Brush your teeth with your opposite hand. Uh, instead of when you, when you meet your friend um, and you, you always say the same, oh, hi, how are you? How are you doing? Come up with something that applies to the moment rather than the same old, same old. And on and on and on, all through our lives. It's so easy without any extra time or effort or energy to be in training all the time, just by breaking patterns. And when we break patterns, we, uh, the more we do it, the more we go from merely existing and going through this robotic routine to truly living, to being present and spontaneous. There's so much more that we notice. There's so much more that we get out of a, a plain old interaction. You know, we, we get together with our friends and, and, and go through the same old routines. What if we're talking about something that is fresh and spontaneous instead? We eventually get to that, of course, after we go through this social routine. But just imagine what life could be if we started breaking these patterns that we are constantly enmeshed in, that we have constantly trained ourselves to, uh, to enact in order to survive in this culture. Yeah, I agree with that. That's all amazing. And there's so many points I want to bring up because I feel like it's a very powerful teaching. It reminds me of what David Lombear would tell me and he would say, uh, you know, take a new way home. So when you're driving home, he would suggest mm. to, to take a new route home. Uh, he also That's said it. that exact phrase. He said, you know, uh, train the way you live and live the way you train. And it's interesting because I feel like it does something to your neurology and freedom is having options and slavery is having no option, right? They, they, our society really wants to mold us into one unit uh, rather than being um, individual unique expressions of life and beauty and intent and free will. We're really being, you know, train track down a road to be the same as everyone else. And so I remember one of my sister's bosses uh, was successful and she said, you know, Matt, you should, I told her about you and your work. You know, I think she could really benefit from a conversation. And so I said, sure. Yeah, no problem. So we were having a chat and she was telling me about, you know, some of the issues she was dealing with all mental, spiritual, emotional type of stuff. And I told her the example of, well, try just, you know, taking a new way home. And she goes, that's so funny. You would say that. I moved a year ago and I still drive the same way to work that I did in my previous house, even if um, I have to go through traffic or construction. She refuses because what happens is we get in this set pattern and now we don't we don't see possibility, option, freedom to express in new ways. And that's what we're doing here. We want to. Um, express. We want to be creative. We're creators, you know, and we want to be in touch and in tune and not just do things um, habitually or without thinking about them. Another way you can say that is unconsciously. If you're just doing the habit of it, right, then the body kind of becomes the mind and it just does things rather than your free will choice. And, and that, that alone is a massive upgrade. And I'll share one other story because I learned, I learned this through martial arts and just being creative through snowboarding and skateboarding and things like that. So <laughs> I was living in this house in Las Vegas and uh, I forgot something. 
And so I walked into the kitchen and then sometimes I'll just walk backwards. So I'm walking backwards out of the house. Right. So rather than forward and um, there's a balcony and I didn't know anyone was home. And then as I get to the door, I look up and somebody's watching me and they would just be like, what? In the hell is this That's person great. doing walking out the door? Um, but you know, I think even now having a daughter, she she watches how creative I am. I try to make things fun and, and try to make her see outside the box because if you're only looking at one scenario, you can't see any other option. And so it's yep. a simple thing, but incredibly powerful. So maybe you want to comment on that. Oh, that's that's beautiful. Those are two beautiful stories. Wow. You know, I, I saw a comic strip a uh, short while ago, uh, and in the, in the first frame, there was a man who had bars in front of him, you know, prison bars, and he was holding on to the bars. And in the second frame, you saw him standing out in a field, and it out that he was holding these bars in front of him. He was completely free, but he was holding these bars in front of him. and And that was such a beautiful depiction of how we are our own slave masters. It's so embedded in us that we don't need anyone to guide and control us anymore. No one to tell us what to do. It's embedded in our psyches. And we are enslaving ourselves. Just, just, just like the woman you described who just drives the old route, even though it's inconvenient for her. She's going through construction and everything. Uh, it's the route, route from where she used to live, but she still takes it just because it's old and familiar. It's ingrained. And we have so much capacity beyond that. Imagine how interesting that drive to work could be every day, that half hour drive or what, whatever it is, if she was going through new neighborhoods, discovering um, new sites, new places to explore when she has some free time, just the stimulation that she could, she could get out of a, an ordinary humdrum routine drive to work. Uh, the, the, the possibilities are endless. Yeah. And when you said that, it reminds me of the example of how they train elephants. And so when they're, when they're kids and babies, baby elephants, they chain them down, right? And they put the spikes deep in the ground. So they try to break the chains and they're unable to do it, but then they grow into adults and they're just putting something soft there or like a chain that they could easily break, but their conditioning is set in. So they don't Mm -hmm. even try and leave. And I feel like that's the example of what's going on in the world today. And what that also creates is well, well, it's creating slaves on purpose because whatever, you know, daddy government says to do or whatever something external says, you know, this is what you're going to do. Then you're going to go do that. These are the options we're going to give you. It has no connection or direction from nature, from spirit, from morality, from connection. It's coming from an artificial source or an institution created by men and women that may or may not have your best interest at heart, but we're conditioned to just ask them for the options, right? Rather than connecting to something bigger and greater. And it's a very archetypal challenge we're dealing with because it is kind of like the matrix right now. When I go out in public and observe what I observe, you know, it's like, this is, this yeah. is 1984, the matrix, what, what I'm observing right now. Yeah, you bet. You bet. Well, you've got a beautiful metaphor behind you there with um, the white wolf and the black wolf. And uh, there's the dichotomy, the white and black and how we've separated things between uh, uh, nature and civilization, right and wrong, 
black and white all the way down the line, uh, uh, sin and grace. And the white wolf and the black wolf are members of the same pack. And there are the gray wolves. They're all, all, there's the whole rainbow of, of colors there. And they function as organs within an organism. And each organ is uh, vitally important for the functioning of the pack. Just like the organs within our bodies, you know, my lungs are no more or less important than my heart or my liver. They all depend on each other. There's this beautiful synergy that's formed. It's not just black and white. And no one, uh, no one component is more or less important than the other. And they all rely upon each other. And there, there's the beauty of, of the clan knowledge there. If one pack member notices something, the whole pack notices it because of this this intuitive communication they have going on. So imagine what potential that holds for us. If we came together again in trusting, caring uh, groups, we came together and lived as clan, the way we were originally intended. We are clan people, that's the way we evolved. And how much we could gain from that, just in terms of raising our children. I use this example oftentimes what usually ends up is that we have an isolated nuclear couple. And nowadays it's oftentimes just an isolated individual trying to raise a child or two or three children. And the, all the total responsibility of that child is on one person. And it's not just that, that that child only has the example of one adult or maybe two adults. And that's not natural. Um, children need a variety of adults for the example and the inspiration they can gain. And they need a variety of children in their lives too. And not just peer, not just a peer group. What do we do? We separate our kids. All the first graders are together. All the second graders are together and all the third graders. That's not natural at all. In, 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 in an indigenous village, you're gonna see all the kids playing together from babies all the way on up through teenagers. And you have the young children who are looking up to the older children uh, for example, an inspiration, you've got the older children learning how to take care of the younger ones. And they've got a separate culture. The children's culture is separate from the, the adult culture and the, and the kids pretty much take care of themselves. The adults just um, have kind of a watchful um, uh, overview on the children to make sure they don't get, you know, they don't get hurt or something, but they're, they just run around like a pack of wolves essentially. And um, this is how I learned you know, when I was a young adult, I, I, I lived. Oh, Tamarack, I think you froze again. Oh, there we go. You, you a brief freeze. You, you said when you were, when you were a young adult, you learned from. Yeah. Uh, I, I learned from the wolves how to be a spontaneous being because that's all they would recognize in me. You know, sometimes I'd be struggling in my, my relationship with my wife at the time. And uh, I tried to put on a happy face because I didn't, want to, I didn't want to bring that into the pack, but they saw right through me. You know, they were relating to the real me. Uh, they would have nothing to do with me if I tried to just put on a happy face and, and, you know, come in and start running around and wrestling with them and such. And I, I learned how to be my authentic self that way because 
they were my family. I felt closer to that, to those wolves than I did to, uh, to any humans at the time. And, and I, I found my refuge there, my solace. And they, uh, they taught me a lot about the guardian way. I, I just want to touch upon this briefly. I know we don't have all morning, but uh, what, uh, what, I, what I learned was about presence. I think that's probably the greatest gift that they gave me. Uh, I, I would notice that Simbat, uh, uh, Simbat Maxtakao, Silver Wolf was the, was the quote unquote alpha female in the pack. I noticed that when she was napping, she'd be sitting there on, on, a, on an exposed rock and um, she'd be drifting off and her eyes would close, but her ears were always perked up. And when, if there was a little noise off to one side or another, her ears would be rotating to pick up on the noise, even though she was napping. She, she was in this, um, uh, in this state somewhere between uh, sleep and awake time. Uh, she was getting rest, but she was present. She was fully present all the time. And when we were, when we were playing, uh, for them, it wasn't play. You know, they had the same games us kids have, you know, hide and seek and tag. And, uh, you know, as kids, we just naturally play these games. And this is actually training for the hunt. When they're chasing each other, and when we're chasing each other as kids, that's the hunt. That's prey and predator. We're training ourselves for the hunt. Hide and seek, the same thing. Um, we're hiding and waiting for um, a prey animal to come along in order to pounce upon him or shoot the animal or whatever. And um, these were games for wolf pups and they're games games for human pups, same games. And I just fell right in, right in with them and played right along with the pups. And, uh, it, and uh, it was fun and it was serious. And that's what the hunt is like for a true hunter. If you know any hunters and I know hunters, they're out hunting because they enjoy it. They might not need the meat anymore. They might not need the hides uh, to clothe their, their, their children. Um, there's still the joy of the hunt. And there comes this time when um, you're stalking and, um, or being stalked. And there comes this time when the two become one, prey and predator become one, and they're, they're engaged in this dance. And uh, going through this process, and you think, oh, this poor deer being chased by a wolf, but the deer wouldn't have it any other way. If you could talk with that deer, as, 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 um, as frightful and as traumatic as the hunt is for the prey animal, they would still choose to do it because this is how they become smart. This is how they become attuned. This is how they become wise. And this is how the deer herd becomes strong because the deer need the wolves in order to train them. The deer need the wolves in order to take care of the sick and elder animals in the herd who would hurt the, hurt the herd. They need the wolves to control the overpopulation. If we didn't have predators um, to prey upon the deer or the rabbits or any other prey animals, they would overpopulate and eat out every plant in their range and they would be in desperate shape. Um, the plants would be decimated. There has to be this relationship so the prey animals need the wolves and the wolves need the prey animals. There's this beautiful relationship going on there. 
and you know that the beauty of it when i was out with the with the wolf pack and uh we were near a herd of deer uh the deer were perfectly relaxed with the wolves around when they could sense that the wolves were not hungry in fact i um you can see videos you can go online and find videos of um wolves up in the arctic where they're still living a, a fairly uh, natural life um just cutting right through a caribou herd and the caribou are not um, alarmed you know the wolves are there the wolves are sleeping off to the side and the caribou are there grazing they're both right there together no big deal it's only when the wolves get hungry then the caribou are alert and then they start moving so there, there's this beautiful relationship that we don't see we don't know unless we actually live it um and we uh, end up with this distorted view of uh, what it's like to be a prey animal. And we think, oh, geez, these, these, these predators have got to go. Look what they're doing to our deer herd. Or, gee, I shouldn't eat animals because the animals have a right to live too. I'm going to be a vegetarian. Well, we have to eat the animals or we're not going to have any plants to eat. And when we clear away a field to grow our broccoli and our carrots, we are destroying all kinds of animals and the habitat for animals. We are killing animals anyway, even though we are not directly eating them. There's this intrinsic relationship where, where plants and animals cannot be separated or prey and predator can't be separated. And I think this is a very important lesson we have to learn in order to return to balance on our mother planet. Yeah, wow. Well, I I agree with with all of that and you know, I I was a vegetarian for the better part of a few years and then I started to uh do a more deep apprenticeship with David Lombear Senapas and I would always ask the um the elders how they thought about eating and things like that and none of them were vegetarians and they kind of, you know, Clifford and David would kind of laugh a little bit. Um but they would they would talk about the balance, you know what I mean? Like they like they would they would they weren't they weren't laughing at the idea they understood it but they would they would have like amongst themselves of just being very aware of the balance you know mm -hmm. saying like uh for example when they released wolves back into i think it was at one of the big national parks uh in the u.s yellowstone possibly uh they 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 rebalanced the rivers everything started to get a little bit better um mm -hmm. so there is this balanced relationship and that's what they were speaking to and in uh, New Zealand, they have an overpopulation of bunnies. You know, my, one of the friends I, yeah. I was with, he said, you know, he's like, yeah, I shoot them out the back of my truck. And I was like, oh my goodness, man. I was like, have a heart, like poor bunnies. He's like, bro, they're pests. He's like, they destroy the gardens. They eat everything. It, it takes everything and takes it out of balance. And so it is, it is challenging to wrap your head around because when I think about a cow or a deer, I would think <clears> about a friend, you know what I mean? I would think <clears> about, wow, this, this sentient being that I would, I would want to have as a friend. But at the same time, when you go even a step further and understanding where your food comes from, what you're eating, the balance in the relationship, the life of plants and animals. And that's what they would tell me too. They'd say, why do you think um, the, the, the plant isn't conscious just because it can't talk? And I was like, well, I don't know. I never thought about that. You know, I was no, like, well, no. cause I don't know. Cause I know, you know, the, you know, the, the animal can make a sound and tell me it doesn't want to get eaten. Right. It seems clear, but they would see everything. They say everything is life. It's all life and it is in this balance. And so it's a challenging mm -hmm. thing for some people to grasp. And I, and I want to do the moral and ethical thing, 
you know? And so how do we get back into this nature uh, scenario into this balance scenario? And like you said there, you know, it's, that's a point I never even thought about. Like when you clear away the land to create a garden or to create all these vegetables, you're destroying some sort of habitat that was already existing. So how do we integrate into this scenario fully is uh, something I, I think that humans need to do. I think humans are almost like the cancer on the planet. The thing that is, you know, not living in harmony with everything else. You brought up a lot of great points. I'm just curious generally about when you're talking about living with the wolves, like, what do you mean? Were you in a, a sanctuary or were you out there with wild wolves or what the heck is with that? I, I have to know. Cause I'm just curious. Somewhere between the two. Uh, I, when I was in my early twenties, I wanted to earn some money to, uh, <clears throat> to buy a big track of land up in the North Woods so that I could, I could live indigenously. I just wanted to go up there and invite some friends and some other people to, to uh, start, start living what I had learned uh, from the elders and, and essentially return to my childhood. And uh, I, st I started a couple of businesses. I started a record store and a waterbed store to make a bunch of money quickly. I was into music and I, you know, a record store was just a natural for me. And uh, uh, the, the, my regular customers would come in. They knew why I was there. They knew I wasn't a, a, a capitalist. I wasn't going to be doing this forever. And they knew my dream, you know, to make some money to, to buy some wild land. And uh, one of my customers came in. He just came back from up north. And he said, hey, Tamarack, I was just stopped at one of these little roadside zoos up here in the North Woods, uh, especially, uh, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago. Uh, there were little roadside zoos where you could, they had a little gift shop and some uh, animals in the cages. You could um, buy some popcorn to feed the bears and, you know, they had a bear in a cage and some deer and a fox and, and, uh, and you know, the, the kids would stop and, the, and they had a little gas pump there, you know, it was a little one stop. And uh, uh, this one uh, roadside zoo had a pair of wolves and, uh, the, the wolves had an interesting history. The wolves were, had been exterminated from Wisconsin at that time. And this was the last wild pair of wolves that were captured by uh, Walt Disney. Uh, he did a, a, um, uh, an hour special uh, on wolves called Lobo. And uh, it was supposedly a, a film of uh, a pair of wild wolves raising their pups. Well, what they did is they, they captured this wild pair and made a big fenced enclosure. And uh, the pair had, uh, had pups in the enclosure and uh, they filmed it. You know, it was very misleading. They said they were filming a wild pair of wolves. Well, technically they were wild, but they were not in the wild. They were in this caged enclosure. And when they were done, they had nothing to do with the wolves. So they gave them to this roadside zoo and uh, they were in a, a little eight by 10 cage. And uh, I didn't know about them at the time, but this customer of mine, customer of mine came in and he said, Tamarack, I just stopped at this, this um, little roadside zoo and uh, to get some gas and uh, something to eat. And uh, I saw there was a pair of wolves there with pups. And I thought I wanted to let, I wanted to let you know about that. And I thought, first of all, it was alarm. Oh no, here we go again. You know, this, um, 
these these animals being being put in a little cage and, and being uh, being tortured. So I the next day I got um, one of my employees to take my place at the store and I I took a ride up and uh, I Jim was the guy's name. He was the owner of the zoo and uh, he was really a nice guy. He told me about the story of where the wolves came from and he took me out to see them. And um, here was the, the, the female, she was laying down in the mud in the front of the cage because they, they, the front of the cage was just mud. They, they just pranced back and forth and back and forth neurotically across the, the, the front of the cage. It's all they could do. They had this boundless energy. And uh, she was just laying there panting and her, her breasts, her nipples were full, full of milk. Obviously she just had pups. And I asked where the pups were. And um, he said, well, we've got them in the house. I said, really? And, and he said, yeah, you got to take the pups away from the adults before they open their eyes. Otherwise they're going to be wild. You cannot, you can't, you can't, uh, um, you can't imprint them on, on humans very easily because uh, they're going to relate to whatever they first see. So he took me in the house and uh, he took me into the bathroom. And I, I said, I, you know, I don't need to use the bathroom right now. Thanks. But he said, no, this is where the pups are. They're in the bathroom. So uh, he took me up to the bathtub and there were four little wolf pups in the tub. Their eyes were just opening. They were 11 days old. And uh, two of them had pink ribbons tied around their necks and two of them had blue ribbons tied around their necks. And um, he had two daughters, you know, nine and 10 years of age, and they were bottle feeding the pups and they were their, their cute little teddy bear pups, you know, and, and uh, they, they had them all decorated with pink and blue ribbons, you know, for the males and females. And um, I asked, well, what's going to happen to the pups? And uh, Jim said, well, I don't know, because uh, we're, we're, uh, we're leaving this. Oh, we're at a freeze again. You'll pop back yeah. in in a second. There we go. Well, short freeze again, but you're back in there. You you paused after, I don't know. We said he didn't know what he was going to do with the pups. Okay. Yeah. He didn't know what he was going to do with the pups. So I asked if he wanted to sell them. And he said, yeah, I guess so. We got to do something with them. So I asked how much. And he said, well, um, wolves wolves are pretty popular now. You know, I, I get about $200 a piece for a pup. And there were there were four of them. That's eight hundred bucks. And back then, this was nineteen seventy-two. Um, um, eight hundred bucks was a lot of money. And um, and I said, um, I, I I lowballed him. I said, well, I'll give you four hundred dollars for the for the uh, for the four of them. And he said, okay, without thinking. <laughs> he just <laughs> so. Um, and he gave me a cardboard box, you know, lined with a, a, a little piece of carpet, nice soft carpeting. So I came home with four wolf pups. And uh, I was, fortunately, I was living out of town. I had some acreage and there were a lot of fields and woods and such behind me. So I saw where uh, there would be the potential for me to raise these pups and be able to run with them. Uh, my real goal, though, was to help reintroduce wolves to the North Woods because they were exterminated. And I wanted to use these pups as a nucleus pack for doing that. And I was going to do it all uh, surreptitiously because there was a, a strong anti-wolf attitude at the time. 
So I raised these pups and uh, I, I raised them to be as wild as possible, which wasn't a problem because just like human kids, they are born wild. They know what to do. It's imprinted in their DNA. They have these ancestral memories. So they instantly formed a pack and um, they allowed me to be in the pack. And I was, I was the alpha male, I was the pack leader uh, because I was providing the food for them. And as they grew, uh, I assumed a, a different role in the pack and I allowed them to be the pack and evolve as they did. I picked, I didn't, I, I, I picked up roadkill for them as much as possible. I, I would throw, I would give them rabbits and we would go out hunting uh, for mice when they were young. They, I, I raised them to be as, as uh, wild as they could be considering the fact that they had to be inside an enclosure most of the time. I had acreage, so I made a big enclosure and I had it connected right to my house so that when I stepped out, I was stepping right in with the pack. And um, they didn't want to come in the house anymore. I, I used to let them come in the house sometimes, but they had no, no idea of, of uh, wanting to come in the house. We think of wolf dens, wolves living in dens. They don't, they hate being enclosed. They're outside all the time. The only time they use a den is when the female has pups. That's it. And it's just the female in the den. They're not den animals like, like bears are, for example. They live outside. And, and part of that is because they want to be attuned to what's going on around them all the time. An animal in a den knows, has no idea as to what's going on outside. So uh, I, I, I grew up with these wolves and they grew up with me. And uh, it, it, the, the funny thing is that th th this is maybe a little bit of a tangent, but wolves and, and lots of other animals as well uh, do not see a species distinction. You know, we have these stories of uh, Romulus and Ramus, the two founders of Rome, who were raised by a, 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 a female wolf. They nursed on this, this wolf. And we have a lot of stories uh, in other cultures about, about wolf kids, you know, children, babies who were abandoned and the wolves would adopt them and, and raise them. These are true stories. I, I researched several of them. And the same with other animals who would adapt uh, the, the children of, of uh, different species. And it's just perfectly natural for them uh, because it's all about relationship. It's not about this species distinction. So to my wolves, uh, my wolves, <laughs> um, I was a wolf. When I acted like a wolf, I was a wolf. I was a part of their, of their community, of their hoop of life. And I, I, I had this unique window into the world of a wolf because of that. I wasn't the observer. I wasn't the biologist. Um, I was a wolf and I felt that. And um, that's where I got a lot of my training, a lot of my guardian training, because in the wolf pack, which grew over the years, um, there were the guardians and they, 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 they acted very differently than the nurturers. And the nurturers and the guardians acted differently from the voices who were, were, were the pack leaders. And um, I related instantly to the guardians because that's just me. And um, I learned a lot about the guardian way from my life with wolves. And that's a lot of what I, 
incorporated into the book. Holy wow, that's amazing. I can only imagine how much you would learn from that type of experience. I feel like all valuable education comes from nature. Well, you know, there's other stuff like science and engineering, which is good too. Um, but I definitely resonate with, with outdoors, with living on the land, with, you know, homesteading, although I can't do any of that stuff. Um, it's something that I, I want to learn and I want to do. And I feel like in my journey right now, it's, you know, I wanted to travel the world, but right now it's this, I've always wanted to like have a bit of land and, and know how to you know, know where my food comes from, have a deep connection with my community and um, my peers, you know, and when you're talking about raising the kids, I remember that old quote of, you know, it takes a, a village to raise a kid. And yeah. it's so true. And, and the way that we have engineered <clears throat> living here is so disconnected from nature. And so if you were to observe or experience life um, in a way that's fully immersed from another species, especially wolves, I can only imagine those, those subtleties and that information that you would learn from that experience. So like I said at the beginning, I'm really excited to get into the book. Um, it's, you know, I get sent a lot of books, but when I got this one, I was like, I know I have to read it, um, but life is so nuts right now. So <laughs> I have to sort out some things. Um, you know, there's a lot of things in this book that I wanted to discuss. And uh, what I'll do is uh, I'll definitely invite you back on the show if you want to if you want to come because there's there's so much in here that I feel is incredibly powerful. And we're just scratching the surface a little bit. Um, I wanted to, you know, leave you with the last question of what do you recommend for people out there that are that are scared that are afraid that we're going through these huge changes right people might be losing their jobs they might want to reconnect a little bit with with nature or you know i think for for what i would say an awake person is right now is they see this um this tyranny coming down that's so obvious and they want to move towards a place where there's food water shelter good community and opportunity to grow, right? That might vary in a little bit of a way, but food, water, shelter, a place to live, opportunity to grow would be amazing. And let's build from there. And uh, I'm just curious what you would recommend to people because so, so many people are, are in cities. So many people have so much to sort out to even begin thinking like that or, or taking action. And so in these challenging times, what do you, what do you recommend? What have you learned from your experiences to recommend to people now navigating our current climate? Oh, that, that's a beautiful question, Matt. And I'm glad you saved this for last because I, uh, you know, we, we can come up with inspiring stories and people are often just in, enthralled with my background and, and what I've learned and all of that. And that's beautiful. We all need inspiration. But where does the rubber hit the road? Like you're saying, what can we do here and now to make a difference in our lives? It, it seems oppressive with the environmental degradation, with our, our political climate, with so much religious conflict in the world. We're killing each other, it's crazy, instead of helping and supporting each other. Uh, and and I, I think what's really important is for us each to take individual responsibility for our lives. And, and that doesn't necessarily mean dropping out and moving out somewhere to start a community or, or homestead or whatever. There's no way that our population as it exists now can do that because we would destroy the rest of our planet right away. We cannot do that. But there is so much we can do right here and now where we're at. I'll give you an example. 
I have a friend um, who lives in the Bronx in New York and uh, an, an, an apartment house six stories up. And she writes a nature column based upon what she sees in the Bronx. There are coyotes in New York City. Most people don't know that. There are raccoons, there are foxes, there are bees and ants. Um, uh, she lives on the sixth floor and there are a lot of people with balconies and they have you know, their flower pots and their flower beds out on their balconies. She watches the hummingbirds come to visit the flowers and the, the, um, the, the colony of uh, hornets um, who are there and, and, um, all, and all of the life there. There's just so much there. And the, the, um, the falcons and the pigeons nesting on the building sides of the buildings, they're, to the birds, these are cliffs. If they're not skyscrapers, they're cliffs and they just move right in, you know. So there's all kinds of life there and people think, oh, I'm so isolated from nature and nature is screaming in their faces. That these animals and plants don't make a distinction between, you know, the wilderness and the city. It's all it's all the same to them. So it's just the frame of mind. It's our headsets. So we can relate. We can connect with the means and ends of our existence wherever we're at. We can do things. We're going to go out and, and, and buy food, right? Well, it's, it's not the fact that we're buying food, but what we buy that makes a difference. For example, I, I eat just wild nuts. About half of them are nuts that I gather. I gather um, wild black walnuts and I eat Brazil nuts. Now, most people don't know that Brazil nuts can only grow in the wilds. And if I am buying Brazil nuts, I am supporting the indigenous people who are going out in the jungle in the Amazon and gathering these Brazil nuts. I'm supporting their way of life and I'm helping to, to preserve the rainforest because this is, this is a crop, an economic crop. Otherwise, the rainforest is being cut down to, to graze cattle and grow soybeans, etc. But if if I can help support these indigenous people and eat wild, if I'm gonna be buying nuts anyway, rather than buying almonds or in, uh, English walnuts that are coming from plantations in California, I can support these indigenous people by buying Brazil nuts, that's what I'm doing. I eat berries. I gather a lot of wild berries, raspberries, blackberries, cranberries around here. And um, I often don't gather enough because I'm busy doing other things. I buy wild blueberries that uh, come from Maine. Uh, there's there's a, a company there, uh, Wyman's, I think it's called Wyman's, if you want to look it up. And I, in, in, our, in our local grocery store, I can buy Wyman's wild blueberries. They stock them because some of us buy them. So there are ways that I can, even with my present lifestyle and your present lifestyle, we can connect more directly with the means and ends of our existence. Uh, you mentioned you being a vegetarian at one time. I was a vegetarian for three years when I lived in Ithaca, New York. Um, I was connected with the university there doing research and I, I wasn't able to get out and uh, get my own wild meat. So I, I, I was a vegetarian also uh, because I would what didn't wanna support the way domestic meat is raised. Um, now I, I pick up roadkill. A lot of people have access to roadkill. 
not all the time when you're in the city, but when you get out in the country or if you have a friend who lives out, um, we pick up roadkill deer, uh, raccoons, porcupines. It, it's better than organic because these animals are eating wild, wild foods, uh, fish. I get all my own fish. Uh, I don't eat domestic meat. So this is a way that I can stay connected to the means and ends of my existence and support a life as sustainable, what I consider to be a sustainable lifestyle. And this is what a lot of, a lot of most of us can do, uh, at least to some degree, in order to help to um, connect to the wild within, to help us to return to what it is to be human and to support that because it goes beyond me. I can take care of myself, yes, but I am not an island. If I can support the indigenous people in the Amazon, if I can um, support the, uh, the return to eating wild I can notice the nature around me, even though I live in the city and make those everyday connections and the training. Oop, I think we're cut off. No, I got you. You did blank out for a second. Yep. You're talking about supporting the indigenous uh, in Brazil and then. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, connecting with the animals in my area by picking up roadkill. It's something that's so simple and yet so profound because I am making this direct connection with the, the deer people and the raccoon people in my area. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, it seems to be an odd form of, of the prey predator relationship, but there it is. Um, cars are hitting deer. Um, it may not be a wolf pouncing on a deer or a cougar, or it may not be me with my bow and arrow killing that deer, but that's secondary. There's still that relationship. There's that prey predator connection and that's what's important. Forget about the judgment, forget about how it's happening. The important fact is relationship and the fact that it is happening. So let's make it happen in whatever ways we can. Wow, well, that's all really powerful I don't know. I don't know if powerful is the right word. It's the only one I can think of. I just think about the taking individual responsibility for our lives because there is always something we can do where we are. And, you know, getting out of the city and homesteading and all that kind of stuff is not going to be an option for most people. Right. Mm. So there are ways in, in our communities, in our cities to get connected with where our food comes from, right. Even your local farmers and how it's, you know, being produced, whatever the case is, if you live in a city, just, you know, probably anywhere between 15 and, you know, uh, 30, 40 kilometers, you're going to find a whole bunch of farms and, and things like that, where you can connect to, uh, many different options for making a difference. And then also the perspective of how you live your life and integrate with your community and nature and, and quality of life and all of that kind of stuff, because we are in a situation where sometimes it can feel like we're the only ones, but it's definitely not the case. You know, most people are good people. Most people want to cooperate. Most people are rooting for your success 
And if we can find those people and connect with them and start looking at the little things, you know, these little ideas here and there, and then we start to share them and really engage with promoting them and also just doing it actively with our dollar or with our action, we can change anything, right? So even with all the tyranny that's going on, it's just like, you know, it's agreement. You just stop agreeing to that, you know, just go shopping, figure out where your food comes from, you know, what ways can you integrate your yourself and your family into nature, right? Supporting good causes and all that different type of thing. You know, the nature column in New York, like that just blew my mind. I never even thought of like, what kind of nature are you talking about? And so yeah, yeah, nature is always there and nature always wins. And so the better we can integrate with it and harmonize with it, we're going to have a better experience of life. Um, This has been an amazing show. I definitely want you to come back if you will be willing, because in the back of your book, you've got definitions of, you know, mental mastery and all these things I want to get into, you know, and mission training and just very practical stuff. And I love practical education. Like you said, when, when rubber hits the road, what do we do? Right. Philosophical, you know, philosophical ideas are great. Spiritual ideas are great. Spiritual principles, all that stuff is great. But what do we do? Right. What do we put into action to create a result that is beneficial to uh, our environment, to our friends, our families and communities? And so uh, everything you put in there is very practical. So with all that rant, I'd like to just uh, ask you, where can people find more about you if they want to dive into your book and your work and, and, and some of the training that you're doing as well? Okay. Uh, first of all, I'd like to suggest uh, going on Amazon. I've got other books in print. There's one in particular I'd like to mention that uh, has to do with uh, what we were just talking about, about connecting with our, our food sources, with the means and ends of our existence. I've got a book out called Extreme Survival Meat, which covers how to pick up roadkill and how to determine whether it's safe or not, uh, how to make pemmican out of roadkill, um, how to process fish, how to make uh, dried fish, just real practical stuff that uh, it's, it, it's stuff you can, you, you can use for every, your everyday purposes. And it's a great survival manual to have. It's only a hundred page booklet and it's packed with information on um, how to use wild meat practically. And uh, in order to find out more about the work that I do, uh, there are a couple of websites. There's one, uh, healingnaturecenter.org and uh, teachingdrumoutdoorschool.org. And um, you'll find a lot of information there. Perfect. Amazing. Well, I invite all the listeners to check out your books and your work to check out the site. If you're in the States or in Canada and you want to go to one of the um, workshops or I don't know if you do retreats or however you phrase those, that that would be really great to get that type of training. So just thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate everything that you've done and that you're doing and that you're educating on. And hopefully we will all figure out some incredible solutions together because nature is all around us. And if we can harmonize with it, we will have a more beautiful and and harmonious experience. Oh, thank you, Matt. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure sharing with you and your audience. Amazing. Well, thanks for coming on. We'll definitely stay in touch. We'll get you back because I got to get into that mental mastery stuff and some of those things too, because I'm super curious. Um, But uh, for now, we'll leave it here. And thank you everybody for listening. See you in the next one. Peace. Okay. So long. 
There you have it, ladies and gentlemen, the absolutely phenomenal Tamarack song. I hope that you enjoyed this episode, and if you did, please share it as far and as wide as you can in Facebook Messenger, Instagram, YouTube, uh, you know, wherever. We are overcoming censorship. Thank you, Dr. Edith Ubuntu-Chan, for helping me conscious language that. Uh, We could all use help. We're all doing our best. And so, yeah, we are overcoming censorship. It is is gnarly how intense it is, and so uh, the best thing you can do you go to mapbelair.com, uh, become a member. You can do so by donation or even for free. You're going to get special bonus episodes you won't see anywhere else. You can also go to Rockfin, R-O-K-F-I-N forward slash Matt Belair. You're going to see uh, the episodes you won't see anywhere else there and on my membership and some on Odyssey as well. I'm just trying to back them up as many different places as it can, but the heart and, and home unit is my own platform um, so I can email you. We can stay in touch. Um, if you need the the membership for free just go to mattbelair.com or sorry matt at zenathlete.com happy to help you out and for those of you guys who really want to engage in training and you want you want to learn how to become fearless get in total alignment with your soul purpose um, and you want to be an empowering community help hold you accountable cheer on your success uh, hit me up mattbelair.com forward slash coaching now has never been a uh, better time for total alignment in mind and body and spirit and if you want the tools the education the support the community hit me up we would love to have you as a part of our community um also check us out on telegram and uh that's it you know we're doing our best so you know big love to everyone listening to this show and and wherever you are in the world know that you are supported that you are loved and uh let's just come into a state of peace and coherence before we close this show just uh whatever you're doing just uh stop what you're doing and take in a deep breath in through your nose hold that breath and let it out slowly, filling every cell, every muscle, and every fiber of your being with peace, joy, contentment, enthusiasm, courage, inspiration, and ready to enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.